Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, April 24th, we're looking at another theological distinction in God's Word that is highlighted by St. Paul in his epistle to the Romans. Have you ever felt like there's a war going on inside of you? That's because there is. Today, we're looking at the distinction between the old Adam and the new Adam. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Reverend Dr. Rick Mars. Dr. Mars is Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, where he's also the Director of the Master of Divinity and Residential Alternate Route Programs. He's also the author of the recently published book, Making Christian Counseling More Christ-Centered. Dr. Mars, welcome to Sharper Iron. It is very good to be with you, Pastor Apple. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Mars, as, as we get started this morning, this distinction that we're looking at today is probably not quite as familiar to folks as what we talked about yesterday with law and gospel. I think those words get used a bit more often than old Adam, new Adam language does. True. And and yet, I think that, that as we start to talk about this distinction, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's going to be an experience that people are going to resonate with, that even if they don't know what this distinction is scripturally, if they've not looked at those passages as we will today, it's something that's going to resonate with people. Give us just a, an introduction to what we're talking about today. Yeah, it is a case where I think all of us sense that there's some struggle going on within us, especially those of us who are Christians, and we just don't fully understand that struggle. It's almost like we feel like we have spiritual multiple personality disorder and we do things we don't want to do, and we don't do things we want to do, and why don't we be better Christians? Uh, we just don't understand that, and it's actually true that uh, we do have a spiritual multiple personality disorder, and it's spelled out in, in Scripture that we're going to struggle with this throughout our lives of the old self and the new self, and it is like your presentation yesterday, um, Law and Gospel, this old self and new self are struggling with this Law Gospel dichotomy throughout all of our earthly lives until Jesus Christ returns and takes us to be with him. But uh, even though there is this struggle, we know who the ultimate winner is in this struggle, and that's who we cling to and and love for for that. So. Mm. Now, some of some of your interest in this topic, Dr. Mars, comes from your background in counseling and psychology. Prior to being at the seminary, even prior to being a, a parish pastor, you you were a professor of of those topics, correct? Counseling, psychology. Correct. So, and there's there's maybe some overlap here. Some some ways that, that counselors talk, psychologists may talk that people might have heard just in you know everyday living. That may be some overlap, but help help us sort through a, a bit of a bit of that with what we're talking yeah, about specifically here. I think the field of psychology has noted a dichotomy within humanness for a hundred years or more. I mean, Freud talked about the id, ego, superego, and he was kind of talking about 
what we think of as old Adam is the ego and the id uh, kind of working in conjunction with each other to do the bad things that they want to do. Uh, his his trichotomy was not exactly describing the old Adam, new Adam, because Freud wasn't a Christian himself. But uh, And then others have done similar sorts of dualities within us, internal versus external locus of control, or ideal self versus real selves, or conscious versus unconscious motives. All those things are kind of struggling within us, and psychology as a discipline has recognized that. But for Christians, that has a clarity when we start thinking about this old Adam, new Adam. And so part of what I'm trying to do with this book is to get pastors and Christian counselors to realize that this is a duality that they should, when, they, when they're when they talking with a parishioner or a counselee who is struggling with this on the inside, that they want to make this particular old self, new self uh, dichotomy more explicit and kind of help them work through that and see it in Scripture, because when we start to see God's truth in Scripture, it makes us feel better. I mean, it just kind of uh, gives us a new sense of proper comfort uh, that, oh, Jesus is right in here with me in this struggle. Um, and even, again, I've found that a lot of people that are struggling with various mental illnesses, if it's depression or anxiety disorders or schizophrenia or anything, they can still be wondrous, faithful Christians, and they're struggling with, why am I still struggling with this mental disorder? Well, some people struggle with mental disorders. Some people struggle with physical disorders like heart disease or cancer or something like that. But uh, we all struggle, but still Jesus is right there in that struggle with us, strengthening our new self and drowning that old self, which is a concept that we'll get to a little later. Let's do a bit of, of defining of terms then. We, we're talking old Adam, new Adam, or old self, new self. And I think as we as we start to look at some scripture passages later, we're going to see there's a variety of ways that the yeah. scriptures talk about this duality that, that is within us. But just as a very basic, just define some terms for us. What is the old Adam or old self, what is the new Adam, new self, before we start digging into the scriptures to see how it's it's laid out there? Yeah, and it's almost a case where, you know, I, I wish that scripture clearly spelled it out and described it to us in a way that said, oh, okay, that's exactly it. Paul is the one that talks about it the most uh, in various ways, but he's not the only one. It gets started in the Old Testament um, but yeah, the old self is that old unbelieving self, the part of us prior to baptism that was completely in control. It's our corrupt nature. Um, doesn't care what God thinks, doesn't want to follow God at all. Um, but that old self then is, well, we'll get to Luther drowned in baptism. Uh, but he keeps on struggling to get up out of that water and and not be fully drowned, uh, and the new self then becomes our primary identity. And for that, we're kind of indebted to our uh, brother Bob Kolb for emphasizing identity in Christ so much in the last couple of decades, That um, which is another kind of term from psychology, but actually one that is embedded within Scripture that we weren't paying close attention to and embedded within Luther, um, that our main identity is in Christ, and when we realize that main identity is in Christ, 
uh, again, it gives us a new strength to continue living and believing in him and working for him in his kingdom. Um, yeah. Good. So let's let's talk then about those places where this is laid out for us in, in Scripture as we see it. And, and you said that, let's go to those primary places in Paul first, I think. And you said there's some in the Old Testament. And, and I, I, I've got your notes here in front of me, and I, I've got some some thoughts that I want to bounce off of you in terms of how we might see this in the Old Testament. But let's just let's go to those very clear passages first from from Paul that okay. laid this out for us. Yeah. In fact, after listening to you uh, and, and the pastor yesterday, I thought, oh yeah, that Psalm fifty-one and other places, Second uh, Samuel eleven and twelve also apply to this. The long gospel passages of the Old Testament, I think, also apply to this old self, new self sort of struggle that we have. So, But yeah, the clearest ones in Paul, to start with some non-Romans ones, uh, 1 Corinthians, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, saying 1 Corinthians 2, 14, uh, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually apprised or examined. But he who is spiritual apprises, examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. So again, Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians 2, there is this natural man and spiritual man. So that's one way that this gets described. Um, Ironically, it apparently doesn't get described particularly as old Adam, new Adam in any one place in Scripture, Hmm. but... uh, Luther kind of put that together from all these other descriptions. So uh, another place uh, comes right after that, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. uh, For I, brothers, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians because they hadn't fully, when we never do, fully embraced their new self, and they were still struggling and acting out like old men. And so there were all these jealousies and strifes between them. So, and then he goes on in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five, uh, for the love of Christ controls us. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, that is the old man, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Again, that's hard for us, I think, sometimes to grasp and embrace that we are actually new creatures in Christ. We have a brand new identity. And when we start to feel depressed or anxious or COVID-19 stuck in our homes and whatever kind of frustration that that's bringing about for us, it's hard for us to remember that, oh, there actually is this new man, this new self within me that trusts in Christ and wow, that's just kind of an amazing thing to think about, that I'm not just who I feel I am, but I have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus, um, as 
Paul says in Philippians then. So mm. I, I think, I think that's just oh, if ahead. I can respond real quick, Dr. Mars, I think I think that's well, there's a couple of things that I would I would say. The this realization of the the new man, the new Adam, new self is is so difficult because it is it's coming from outside of us. And I think yes. that's where we've got to tie in to yesterday's conversation with law and gospel, that the gospel is that outside word, that gift of yep. God that is declared that is just totally unnatural to everything that that we would think. You know, I mean, in terms of in terms of we do something we receive. This is just the way things work. And and the gospel comes from outside of us and declares you're righteous completely as a gift for the sake of Christ. Yeah. And so this this new man in us is is just I mean it of course it's going to be difficult because we're just not used to that. It it's it's yeah. coming from outside of us. And so it, it and it becomes then a matter of and I think we'll we'll talk about this. It it is a matter of faith because when I look at my life so often I don't see the new self at work. I see my old self right. at work a whole lot. Right. And so to to know that there's a new self, that is a matter of faith because I, I don't always see it. Sorry, keep keep going, Pastor, yeah. Dr. Mars. No, thank you. That's very important to, to uh, keep in mind that it is coming from outside of us. This is not something that was somehow a, a little kernel inside of us that just continues to grow in this new self. This new self was placed upon us uh, through Christ in our baptisms. And, yeah, it feels foreign to us because it is foreign to us. Um, I'm, I, I kind of watched some Star Trek uh, different episodes, and so in this we've been watching various Star Treks, and there's one being, uh, one type that they actually have two beings within them. And, uh, you know, like there's a, a worm sort of thing that lives, and, and both beings have influence over the brain of that particular person. Uh, that's kind of what's going on within us. Now, in Star Trek, those two things are working together. In us, in the old Adam, new Adam, those things are kind of working separately from each other. But uh, um, it is from outside of us, and we have to trust that that's true, and we can only learn of that trust through God's word. Right, right. And the other thing, I mean, and so this, this new man comes to be part of us. I mean, the, the new man, I guess, how do we say this? The new man is us. And so in that sense, the new man's inside of us, but it, but he comes outside from the outside from Christ. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? So I think, I think, and the point I want to want to make on some of these passages, which maybe, and I don't know that I really fully was grasping this until you laid some of these out is that when we're when we're hearing Paul talk about for example the natural man or the spiritual man the the man according to the flesh or according to the spirit these are some other terms the the old creation the new creature that Paul talks about that that these are not this is happening within me as as a christian that that at the mm -hmm. same within me and it's it's not in other words it's not because i think the temptation at least for me sometimes and maybe for others is to think that well the fleshly people that's that's them but the, yeah. the spiritual people that's us that's the christians and and part of the this distinction is recognizing no both of these things are happening in me at the same time mm -hmm. yeah i i tell students about a time when i was 16 years old or so and i was struggling with my faith and I went to my pastor, and I was telling him things like, 
yes, I just want to stop thinking these doubts. I don't want to think these things anymore. You know, how do we know that we're right and Muslims are wrong or we're right and Buddhists are wrong and all those sorts of things? And I know we're right. I know Christ has risen from the dead. I was telling him this. And he actually then pointed me towards Romans 7. He was a young pastor that actually had a hard time finding it at the time. So uh, I, I tell students, make sure you know where to find Romans 7. But uh, he pointed me to Romans 7, which we'll get to more later, where Paul's laying out that inner struggle that's still going on within the Apostle Paul, who we think of as being the most holy, most spiritual man that the Christian church has ever known. At least he wrote in that way. Uh, But he knew his own inner struggle in this life was still within him greatly. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, we're going to get to Romans here, probably on the other side of the break. I think I, I interrupted right. you earlier when you were going through some of the passages in Paul. You talked about a couple in, in First and Second Corinthians. Where else in, in Paul, besides Romans, which we'll come to later, yeah. do we see yeah. this Here's, distinction laid out? Galatians 5, um, especially verse 17, for the flesh, Sarks in the Greek, sets its flesh against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, uh, the NASB and IESB decide to uh, capitalize that spirit because it's saying the Holy Spirit, but I think it's also talking about the Holy Spirit interacting with our new man. So for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please, uh, followed by the list of deeds of the flesh of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit that comes later on. So, And then maybe one of the clearest ones outside of uh, Romans 7, uh, Ephesians 4, 22, that in reference to your former way of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I think that's one of the clearest ones in Ephesians 4, because um, it's just Paul's directly saying, yeah, you've got this old self within you, and it's corrupt, but you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind and putting on this new self, actually Jesus is putting on this new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So it's coming from outside of us again and bringing us this righteousness um, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that's a very, I think, one of the, the clearest passages in Paul outside of what we'll look at at Romans in, in a bit. So let's let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament, and because I think— and as we were, as I was thinking about this in preparation for today, it, these passages in Paul are very clear when it comes to this old self, new self. Right. And you mentioned earlier, you know, some of our conversation yesterday. But as I was, I was thinking, trying to think through some of this old self, new self in the Old Testament and where you see it. One of the, tell, tell me what you think of this. So, one of the places that came to mind, and it came to mind because of one of the ways we often talk about it is old Adam, new Adam, is is to think about Adam. So. In Genesis 1, we, we learned that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And in the, then in the fall, though, after the fall into sin in Genesis 3, then they start having kids. And in Genesis 5, Moses is very clear in, in telling us that when Adam fathered Seth, 
that Seth was in Adam's image. I mean, you have a very clear distinction there between the image of God in, in chapter 1 and then this image of Adam that Seth receives in chapter 5. And yet we also know from, from Genesis 9, after the flood, that man hasn't completely lost the image of God in, in certain senses, that, that you're not to murder your fellow man because man was created in the image of God. And so I, I, I don't know, I, I was just trying to toss those ideas around in my mind. The other, the other thought that I had, too, from the Old Testament, and, and maybe there's, there's probably clearer passages. I might be stretching things a bit too far. But the other, the other place that I, I thought of there in, in those first chapters of Genesis, when it comes to this old self, new self distinction, is in Genesis 3, where, where Adam gives his wife the name Eve. And he gives her the name Eve because, as, as it says, she's going to be the mother of all the living. Now, and, and this may be, you know, I don't know, again, maybe I'm taking this too far. I've, I've always understood Eve to be the mother of the living, not only in the sense that we can all trace our lineage back to Eve, but she's also the mother of the living in the sense that she's the one that the Savior is going to come through. The promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 is going to come through her. Mm, and right. so when, when Adam names his wife Eve as the mother of all the living, I've, I've taken that to be an expression of the faith that both Adam and Eve would have had and the promise that, that God made to them in Genesis 3.15. And so right at that moment, and again, maybe, maybe this is, is trying too hard, but, but I, I'd like, I, I like it. <laughs> it yeah. At that moment, you see Adam and Eve both as the old self, because they're going to die. And yet Adam is confessing, you're still the mother of all the living because God has promised a Savior. There's the, the new self created in the likeness of, of Christ, that, that faith in Christ. So I don't know. You could respond to that, Dr. Mars. You can—if you, can, you, you don't like it, that's fine. I, I, just some of the thoughts that I had. And also take us to a, a few of those clearer passages in the, in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, no, I like where you're going with that, and I think you're right. The, where, where I had gone with it is I thought more about Old Testament. It's just looking at the great faithful patriarchs of the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Isaac— Jacob, Moses, David, and the Old Testament writers talk about the faithfulness that all, one that I list there, four, five, six of those men had, but yet the Old Testament also gives us some really clear stories about how they fell from trusting in their Lord in various ways. Uh, Noah built this huge ark, I mean, great, but yet he gets drunk and does odd things after the after the flood. Abraham, the great promise of faith, but yet he doesn't trust God enough to even tell the Pharaoh that, hey, this is my wife, actually, not my sister. Um, you know, Abraham just is stumbling all over himself in faith in various ways. Jacob actually wrestles with God because he both trusts God, but he doesn't trust God's promises that he's going to be the father of nations and Moses. Well, we can just go off on Moses doesn't doesn't want to even go on the trip. Um, but yeah, and then I think David, and you guys brought this out yesterday, is maybe the clearest example. Just uh, scripture poses him as the most faithful, you know, trusting in his Lord, but yet you get to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and he's tempted to break the sixth commandment, which leads him to break the eighth commandment, which leads him to break the fifth commandment um, horribly, and has another man killed so that 
he can have his wife um, and not get in trouble with with his kingship because other people would know that he impregnated this other man's wife. Uh, he's a horrible sinner in that situation, but yet he confesses his sin once Nathan, the prophet, uh confronts him with it, and he confesses his sin, and when he confesses, he is forgiven. And that's then what leads us into Psalm 51, which I think is maybe one of the clearest examples, um, starting at verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So again, David seems to understand that he has this dichotomy going on within him of a new heart and an old heart that he wants God to blot out uh, the old part of that, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of examples of these saints in the Old Testament who lived in this reality of the old self and the new self that Paul very much makes explicit in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Romans, which is what we're looking at in Sharper Iron right now. And so we're going to come to those Romans passages on the other side of the break, which we're going to take right now. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. Please stick around. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Hello, I'm Gary Duncan. The COVID-19 pandemic is affecting our routines, vocation, and worship. Recently, you received a mailing about our annual share fundraising event. However, during this unprecedented time, KFUO Radio is postponing our on-air portion of share until June 25th through the 27th. Gifts can still be made through the mail and online, plus those gifts will be matched by this year's matching fund. I know times are tough, but when you are able to bless our ministry, please do so. Opportunities to share the hope that is ours through Jesus Christ increase at times like this. And as a partner, you provide for those in our neighborhoods and around the world to hear the gospel message through KFUO Radio. I pray for you and your safety, and I ask for you to pray for KFUO, our staff, and volunteers during this difficult time. And again, our plans are to move the broadcast dates of our on-air share until June 25th through the 27th. Thank you for listening and supporting KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Friday, April 24th. We're looking at the distinction between the old self and the new self here in throughout Scripture, and especially in the book of Romans. We've got Reverend Dr. Rick Mars of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He's the Associate Professor of Practical Theology there. He's also the author of Making Christian Counseling More Christ-Centered. Dr. Mars, prior to the break, we'd, we'd laid out this distinction, some definitions and spots in Scripture to look at, and we've been saving now Romans. Paul really gets into this in the book of Romans. And 
you've mentioned chapter seven several times, and we so right now within the series we're in. Oh, where did we we left we left off in the middle of chapter three, so we haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, sure. but chapter I mean chapter seven is is going to be a key chapter, but we can't we can't just take it all by itself. We need a bit of of context. So take us into the book of Romans where this old self, new self distinction really comes comes to play. And, and what does Paul do with it here in Romans? Yeah. Okay. Hey, and before we do that, can I actually say to listeners, happy birthday to you uh, yesterday. <laughs> I wanted to, Thanks. my wife <laughs> wanted me to do that. <laughs> For those of you my my Thank wife you. and Pastor Apple used to work together when he was at seminary, so she wanted to uh, send right. her greetings along to you as well. And, and I uh, appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Give give my yeah, greetings yeah. to her as well. It was yeah. 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 She she said say say hello say hello to my adopted son. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So um yeah, this is I think it starts to come up actually in in Romans chapter 5. At least Paul starts mentioning um Adam in Romans chapter 5 uh, verse 12. Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sin. And then in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So he's already in here in verse 14 telling us, okay, we've got a first Adam. Now we're going to get a second Adam. So there is that play that happens in Paul as well. It's not just our own uh, old Adam, new Adam within us, but often the uh, Adam first Adam, historical Adam, and the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. So um, verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Those of us that are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve thousands of years later didn't have control over if we were going to be born sinless or sinful. We were born sinful. There was nothing we could do about it. That one man's disobedience, and it's interesting that Paul doesn't blame Eve at all. He blames Adam, which I think is the right thing to do. Adam was silent when Eve was being tempted by, uh, by the serpent. And Adam was the one who had heard God say, don't eat of the fruit. Uh, we have no scriptural evidence that actually points that Eve heard God say that directly. She was just trusting in Adam to tell her that they weren't to eat of that fruit. And then when Adam starts kind of looking the other way, which is the first temptation, uh, in a sense, uh, Eve goes ahead and eats the apple and gives it to Adam. And again, he was within sight distance. He was watching this happen, apparently. So so it was his disobedience that made the rest of us sinners. So, But then in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul uh, is probably being challenged by others. They say, well, then can't we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus— were baptized into his death. And that's an amazing statement that Paul makes there that Luther really emphasizes and we'll come back to later. And uh, we who follow Luther's theology also tend to emphasize from the small catechism and large catechism 
But we've actually, our baptism is not just something that, you know, is a an image or something that, you know, uh, is, I don't know I'm looking for, just a, a play thing to do. Uh, it actually does something to us. And I remember preaching on this text once when I was a parish pastor, and an 80-year-old member came up to me afterwards and said, so, Pastor, what you're saying is when we were baptized, God actually did something to us. And I'm sure that she had heard several pastors in her previous 80 years of life preach something like that, but it was still sinking in when she was 80 years old that, yes, uh, when we were baptized, Christ did something to us. We were baptized into his death. So, And then verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So again, he's hinting at that newness of life, the new self. And then in verse 5, he goes on, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Thanks be to God. Verse 6, we know that our old self, here's where it comes out very clearly then in Paul, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, yeah, there that old self explicitly comes in. And I kind of have this image in my mind. If people go back and think about the Wizard of Oz, um, Dorothy is in the the, uh, the evil witch's castle, and by accident, Dorothy kind of throws a bucket of water on the old witch, the evil witch, and the evil witch starts melting you, melting me. Sorry for the bad sound effects, but uh, <laughs> that's in a sense what happens during our baptism is that our old self, the old wicked self, is drowned and goes away. Unfortunately, you know, she had a sister who kept coming back or whatever. So uh, uh, that old self keeps coming back in various ways. But it is what happened in our in our baptism. So nice. I, I've never. I, I was wondering. It's been a long time since I watched The Wizard of Oz. So I was wondering where you're going with that. But yeah. So so the the old <laughs> self is is melted, but but the the old self, as as Luther would say, is a, a very good swimmer when it comes to baptism. And, yeah. and that's where, where Paul then goes in into chapter 7. He, he describes this, yeah. this war within himself between the old self and new self. Take us into chapter 7. Yeah. Chapter 7, um, yeah, let's start about verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
Paul seems to be, you know, talking about that inner inner struggle between the two selves right there. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, yeah, there's just this big war waging within Paul, and he recognizes it. And he's doing this, I mean, we think Romans was written a little bit later in his life. This is not one of his early epistles. So it's not like he was, you know, at some early stage of his life, didn't fully have a grasp on this. He realizes from Jesus' words in Matthew and other places where the law is not just about what we do, but about how we feel and the, the inner struggles. If we hate our neighbor, uh, we're actually killing him in our heart. If we have lust for another woman or another man, we're actually breaking the sixth commandment in our hearts. And Paul probably realized how much more deeply Jesus pointed the law to us on the inside and knew that constant conviction of the law that he was having. Um, yeah, I'll pause there. Now, and that's so Paul, I, I appreciate that point to recognize that Paul was writing this likely later in ministry. We, we've, we've said at the outset of this series that he's probably writing it from Corinth toward the end of his third missionary journey. So the mid fifties, and, and again, that's, you know, he's got another 10 plus years left in his, his life, but this is, he's not a, he's not a baby apostle at this point. He's, he's no. done quite a bit. And, and to recognize that that's, that that's a very that's a very important point to make i think that that as he matures you might say he recognizes okay. the struggle within him all the more um and i know that that's jumping a little bit ahead on some of your notes but that part of part of our ongoing lives as christians is recognizing this old self in us and it i mean it's, i don't know if if i can say it this way it's almost like it gets worse like the longer i'm a christian the the worse i recognize i am <laughs> And and yet the the and so I, I I appreciate my savior all the more. I don't know if that's uh, I, I is that is that okay to say? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. In fact, I I I've been so impressed. Bo Geertz wrote a book called The Hammer of God years ago. He was a Swedish bishop in the in the 20th century, and all of us who went through seminary read that book at some point. Um, and in one place, I've I've always remembered the story, and I actually put it in the book. Uh, one of his pastors tells a story about a farmer who bought a field, and even though he knew the, the field had a bunch of rocks in it, and he spent many months picking up the small rocks and piling them to the side so that he could farm the ground the next year. And he's happily clearing his field of these manageable-sized rocks at first, but then he starts to realize that as he goes a little deeper that there's larger rocks. And so he spends a lot of effort to dig out the bigger stones, the heavier stones, and slowly move them over the side of the field. And then he just keeps on digging. And when his spade goes down a few inches, he realizes it's solid rock underneath. He's bought a field that, yeah, has ground on top of it, but is a solid rock. And the limited stuff he's going to be able to grow on that field 
he realizes that the thin layer of soul of of soil um, is never going to really let him remove the rocks in total. And that's kind of what we're struggling with as we become more and more mature in our Christian faith. A lot of people, especially you know non-Lutherans who don't hear this message with some frequency, think, oh, okay, I'm getting better and better and better. I had a, a cousin who was Baptist who told me once it felt like his Christian life was a roller coaster because he goes up, 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 up and gets stronger and stronger uh, spiritually and then you know, has some sin in his life and realizes it and goes through a horrible where he starts to doubt that he was actually a a Christian. Well, that's just kind of what we are like. Uh, We're on a roller coaster ride through this life where we're going to constantly realize our own sinfulness. And at the base of it, it's just completely there. And as we mature, we realize the completeness of that sinful nature within us. So, so, so Paul is realizing this, he, and he's expressing it in Romans 7. How, how does this, this chapter all come to a conclusion, and, and what, what provides the comfort, the resolution for Paul here in Romans? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, he, uh, in verse 22 and 7, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner man, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He realizes that it's only through Jesus Christ that he's actually relieved of this wretchedness. And in that sense, I mean, I used to have a picture in my head that our old Adam was this strong little guy, and he eventually got smaller and smaller and weaker. And the new Adam was a strong guy, and he got bigger and bigger and strengthened throughout our lives. And in a sense, that's right, but I'm trying to come up with a different image in my own mind because that new Adam is never strong within himself. That new Adam is strong because he has a strong Savior, Uh, and that's what's hard for us. In fact, that what I read was the end of chapter 7, but then that flows right into chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Skipping down to verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. And so throughout the book of, of or the chapter 8 of Romans, I often say we're all Romans 7 Christians struggling with our sin, but we, are, we have a Romans 8 Savior. Uh, Christ is in you, in verse 10. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Because we have been buried with him in baptism in Romans chapter 6, we now know that he dwells within us. And when we start to doubt, well, maybe I don't believe you know, what I should. Maybe I don't believe strongly enough. We can go back and remember our baptisms. I still remember the first professor. It was John Seleska uh, for me, Tim Seleska's uh, sainted father. Uh, John Seleska was a great influence on me early in life. I had him for classes my freshman and sophomore year of college. And he kept saying, remember your baptism, remember your baptism. And I for the first several times I heard him say that, I'm going, why would we do that? What's going on? It wasn't until years later I realized, 
oh, he was just repeating Luther to say, remember and trust that God did something to you back when you were an infant or when you were a younger person. Uh, maybe you were baptized when you were older, but he did something to you in that baptism that joined you together with him in his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. And there's nothing that can be done to really reverse that, short of just completely saying, I don't believe that anymore, uh, and throwing that away. And even there, if somebody repented of that sin, they could still come back and trust in their baptism. Right. I mean, the thing about the thing about baptism, and and you're talking about you know what's what's the image maybe, and I'm not sure if this is an image or not, but but in Romans six, the phrase that keeps coming up is this that you all these things happen to you with Christ or or in Christ, and so the yeah. the strength of the of the new man is precisely that 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 he the new man is in Christ. You are you are in him, and all that is Christ is now is now yours. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure the image on that. How, how to how put how to put that in picture language off the top of my head. But that's the yeah. that's the strength is is that you are in Christ. Yeah, and that's where again Luther gives us some clarity in the small catechism where he yeah. So so take about... us take us into Luther on this. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, in the small catechism, he uses this Roman six language about baptism and teaches us directly about the old Adam. He says, what is the significance of such a baptism with water? Answer, it signifies that the old Adam in us, with all sins and evil desires, is to be drowned and die through daily contrition and repentance. And on the other hand, that daily a new person is to come forth and rise up to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And then he says, where is this written? Well, St. Paul says in Romans 6, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, to the glory of the Father, we too are to walk in a new life. So yeah, Luther understood this daily sort of struggle that he was having, and that we all as Christians have with sins and evil desires, but that the way we drown those is to not keep focusing on them but to look to our Savior and to repent to him, and that then brings out the new person to come forth, to trust in his forgiveness again. And again, this is not something it's just kind of a one and done. That's where I think a lot of Christians make them say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Now I don't have to go to church anymore. I don't have to read the Bible anymore. I've done that. No, this is something that comes from the outside, and it's why we need the constant strengthening of God's words, just like, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I, I ate a meal when I was 17 years old. Now I don't have to eat anymore. We would starve ourselves to death if we thought like that. But we have to continue to hear God's word, receive the Lord's Supper, remember our baptisms, which is what connected us to this uh, faith in the first place, and realize that that daily sort of process of God's law and God's gospel uh, brings about this renewal of the new self. When one of the places, just as a quick plug here for for the catechism, uh, that I think you see Luther helping us in our lives as Christians with this old self, new self distinction is in his morning and evening prayers. 
and and yeah. the, the differences between them in that the morning I, I wake up and I, I, I ask that God would keep me this day from sin and every evil. Lord, help me to live in my baptism as this as this new man that you have made me. And then at the end of the day, you 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 come before your before your father in heaven and, and you ask him for forgiveness for all that you've done wrong. You recognize where that old self within you has has gotten the best of you and you you plead for the Lord's forgiveness and you trust that you've got it in your in your baptism. So I mean that's just a, another example of how this this thought of new self old self comes through very clearly there in the catechism. Dr. Mars, we've got yeah. just about 6 minutes left here on the morning. So I'm going to I'm going to fast forward us a little bit because I, I know you again this this is a particular um, a topic of particular interest to you in your work as a a counselor previously and especially now as a pastor helping other pastors help their people. And so when you when you think about this topic, this distinction between the old self and the new self, what's what's the importance of it for pastors helping their people? And and also what's the importance of it for for Christians as as we go about our daily lives? Why is this such an important thing for us? Yeah, in pastoral care, I think it's a really key distinction because well, you know, for example, if somebody finds out that they have cancer, a common question that comes up is, why did God let this happen to me? And we can never answer that question. Uh, we can just be with that person as they're going through the cancer problem. We're all dying in this life, but some people have a disease like cancer or something else that is bringing that death process coming faster than it is for, for others. And so to ask those questions, why is God letting this happen to me, is not really the best question or the right question to ask, because we can't answer that one. But where is God with me through this suffering is the question that we want them to eventually ask. And that's where Christ took upon himself all of our sins, all of our infirmities, all of our sicknesses. And then it becomes even more pointed, I think, when pastors are not dealing with somebody with cancer or heart disease, but if they're struggling with a mental disorder, depression, uh, which, again, has a lot of physiological causes. Some people are genetically predisposed to uh, depression or anxiety disorders, just like I'm, I tell people, the reason I climb tall buildings, I, I have this odd uh, sport that I'm involved in. I stair climb. Uh, I do about five or six different stair climbs around the United States every year and try to climb tall buildings as fast as I can. Uh, people think I'm crazy for doing this, but I do it partly because I'm genetically predisposed to heart disease. My dad had a heart attack at age 67. My grandmother had a heart attack at age 67. I apparently have the same sort of cholesterol issues they did. So I'm trying to prevent that by doing those things. Well, we're all genetically predisposed to sin. What can we do to exercise ourselves in our faith? And that's where this comes about. And so where pastors can point their parishioners who are struggling with their doubts of why is God letting the schizophrenia have its impact on my life in this way? I've known a lot of people with severe mental illnesses who actually have very deep faith in Christ. And one woman that came up to me, uh, she was a vis visiting our, our congregation when I was a parish pastor, but I knew her and knew she was a Lutheran Christian. And she uh, came up and said, Pastor, can I take communion with your with your congregation today? I said, yes, dear, you can always take communion. She said, oh, thank you. I always feel so forgiven after I've received the Lord's Supper. 
So, again, somebody who's struggling with mental illnesses uh, often also know that they've got this old Adam, new Adam struggle within themselves, and the only way we can really help them as pastors and church workers is to point them to Jesus Christ, their Savior. And we want to point them also to medical professionals who will help them be on the right medications uh, so that their uh, schizophrenia or their depression is minimized physiologically in some way. But those medications are not going to answer the spiritual questions that they have, only the gospel. And that's where I think a lot of Christian counseling is missing that, uh, because a lot of Christian counselors don't know Luther's soul care theology. They don't know how to bring the gospel directly in, and that's where I'm hoping my book, if pastors loan it to non-Lutheran Christian counselors or non-Lutheran Christian counselors get it in their master's degree program somewhere, that they'll go, oh, Luther had something pretty important to say about Christian counseling. Uh, I'm hoping that it's a book that has a greater influence on not just Lutherans uh, doing soul care, but also non-Lutherans. That, because a lot of non-Lutherans tell me, oh, yeah, I love Luther. I love reading Luther. Well, read the first eight chapters of this book, and I think you'll love Luther even more. And then the last eight chapters of my book are Christian counseling techniques that flow out and can be helpful to anybody, um, not just Lutherans. Dr. Rick Mars is Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He is also the author of the book, Making Christian Counseling More Christ-Centered, helping us today with a wonderful discussion on the proper distinction between the old self, the new self, throughout Scripture, the Book of Romans. Dr. Mars, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much, Pastor Apple. It's been a great pleasure. Good to talk to you and your listeners. Old Adam, new Adam. In the first Adam, you and I are sinners, corrupt, in need of salvation that we can't come from ourselves. In Christ, we are the new self, created after the likeness, the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. This is a battle that keeps raging throughout our lives as Christians, but in Christ, in Christ, this is the key that we are in him. That is our identity. And one day, one day that old self will be completely gone when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, raises from the dead, and takes us to our eternal home. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>